and start. Thank, thank you for uh, attending our discussion on perspectives on responding to information security breaches. Uh, this morning I have a, a panel of esteemed members of the UC Davis campus to participate in this discussion. We have Mitchell Benson from University Communications, Steve Drown, campus consul, uh, Paul Hennick, a sergeant in the police department, uh, myself, I am Bob Ono, the campus IT security coordinator, and David Walker to keep us all on track as a facilitator and perhaps prompt questions that might uh, be uh, of interest to our audience this morning. In terms of background, uh, I made some references to California Civil Code 1798.29 and the UC Business Finance Bulletin IS-3. Uh, those two uh, the law and the policy are very much guiding our notification for information security breaches. And again, we're talking about breaches that involve personal identity information. And that's name in combination with social security number, a driver's license number, or identification card number, an account number, which could include a credit card uh, account information, medical information, and most recently also health insurance information that was recently amended to 1798. Um, according to state law, when there is a security breach as identified in the third paragraph, uh, when there's, we are required to notify the identity owners when there's reasonable belief that an unauthorized person has acquired the unencrypted personal information uh, as defined. Uh, it doesn't necessarily say, state how strong the encryption should be, we noted, uh, but that is uh, part of the existing state law. The questions this morning where each of us, uh, each of us will try to address is on this slide. So if you uh, don't hear the answer and wish one of us to come back to them, uh, feel free to go ahead and, and ask us to, to go back to any of these questions. Or if you have any other question that comes up this morning. Right. One of the things I thought would be useful to do uh, would talk would be talked about the information educational technology uh, process for re breach reporting. Uh, this follows our cyber safety policy on campus. We have a, a policy that requires every unit to develop some type of incident response plan. Our central IET unit has developed this plan, and we're in the process of implementing it now. Uh, what we do is we ask. If any breach that involves these nine characteristics uh, occurs within a campus unit, that the end user report the incident to their support staff, and the support staff may then report thereafter up the, uh, the management chain. Uh, so these, this is a very broad list of nine items, and includes computer theft to all sorts of a variety of unauthorized computer access or some type of loss of integrity availability of a computer system. Uh, once an end user notices something along these lines, we have a, a security incident priority classification, and we ask the end user to use this as a guide to report what the initial criteria uh, is or severity for the particular incident. Uh, and this is reported to the desktop staff unit. From there, the desktop staff will take a look at this and use this chart or matrix to determine what further notification is necessary. 
and oftentimes this involves some initial discovery of the incident, uh, some initial uh, interviewing of the individual who reports the problem, and ultimately it, it reports up to the unit manager or uh, it could be my office or it could include the vice provost or information educational technology. Uh, this is a template that we're under development now. We're very close to rolling this out into production. Uh, but it's something we have on our security website that you might find useful to take a look at and see if it has some applicability to each of your own units. Uh, and if it's useful, you can certainly, certainly just wipe out the IET name and insert your own campus <laughs> unit, and that would be fine. Uh, I'll start off with a discussion of how I approach this particular breach as the campus IT security coordinator. Uh, one of the questions I looked at uh, initially for these types of reports is, is, is there any personal identity information on this particular system or file resource? And that seems like a very easy question, but it also uh, tends to be elusive. Uh, what we find is that people have old files. They may not even know if identity information resides uh, in, in those files. Typically, anything from the year 2000 to perhaps 2005, uh, oftentimes those files contained old student account numbers that had social security numbers or perhaps uh, they had some uh, information that we didn't keep track of very well and they're just certainly remnants of the, of the file system or the computer. Uh, individuals often don't know what's on their computers. It, it seems like an odd statement, but also what we find is a lot of times the people have retired, they may actually give file resources or disks to someone and say, you may need this at some point in time without really describing what's on there. It could be old rosters that people have forgotten about. We find rosters from, again, from 2003 time frame that people just forget that they have on their systems, and those often become problematic to us. Sometimes there are no backups. Uh, if there are no backups and it's a computer theft, it becomes very elusive to, for the person to, to describe what's on the computer because he or she doesn't have it any longer and there are no backups. Now, certainly that's not a great position to be in, but uh, in fact, I know of a computer that's reported uh, stolen in Brazil this week of, of which there's uh, no backups. And again, we're relying on some memory of the laptop owner to tell us what was on there. Uh, we also find that employee IDs here at Davis look, interesting enough, just like a social security <coughs> number. Uh, we've chosen a nine-digit employee number that could very well be someone's social security number, but not the, the employees. And so that has caused us a great deal of heartburn because any time we, we look for SSNs, we don't know really what we've got, and it requires a lot more review than uh, we would hope to do. Uh, we also find test data. Uh, I will tell you there was a recent... Uh, incident involving a, a laptop computer that had initially we th what we thought to have 58,000 social security numbers on it. As we looked at it closer, we found that it was simply test data and all the SSN hits we found were actually fictitious data. They did not exist as social security numbers, uh, at least for the individuals. Actually, the names were fictitious as well. But through a, a, a scanner, the scanner doesn't really know. It looks at a pattern I said, gee, that's a nine-digit number. It's got some dashes in it that looks like a social security number. And so, again, it becomes very elusive for us. Uh, so if we have that information, then we have notification process involves campus <coughs> unit management. We want to make sure that the campus unit for which the employee reports is aware of the particular issue, and that follows up their management chain. We also have a 
investigations coordination work group. I'm not sure if every campus has something similar. They, they do now. They yeah. do now? Yeah. All right. And so this is a group that uh, looks at each of these incidents and assigns, triages, and tracks all the allegations of, of possible misuse. And this is one of those items that would be reported through our campus investigations coordination work group. Uh, there is a requirement in the Business and Finance Bulletin Information System Policy 3 that requires us to notify OP in the event of a suspected security breach involving personal identity information. Now, that doesn't require us to, uh, to confirm it, but if we have an additional, just a, a hint of something involving personal identity information, we do have a report, and we can clarify the report later. We may determine that the report uh, is, is not authentic and the, the issue can be closed, but we do have a requirement under IS-3 to make that initial report. In terms of what we do once we have that notification complete, we look at following the, the system-wide electronic communications <coughs> policy. If we're looking at a system, let's say we have a backup or we have some fire resources to inspect, we look for the consensual or non-consensual access request. That is required by the ECP. It's also camp required by our uh, UC Davis campus policy. Uh, once we have that in hand, again, consensual from the individual or uh, non-consensual, if, if that's not available, we then look to how do we preserve those electronic resources. Uh, we do not want to destroy or, or taint the information we're looking at. Uh, so we'll look at forensic tools for duplication, uh, we'll also be looking at chain of custody, how to protect the information uh, from being uh, perhaps loss of control and then perhaps, uh, you know, I've seen instances not here but where uh, hard drives are not appropriately marked uh, and they're left in a pile on a desk and someone says, well, maybe it's usable, so I'll reformat it and insert it into some other machine. Uh, we don't want those types of situations to occur. So at UC Davis, we do have a computer forensics room and we try to maintain all that material there uh, it's, has secured access, it's alarmed, and we also have labeling requirements so that we don't have that problems of, of wondering uh, who has touched that, that particular resource and has it been tainted. Uh, presuming it's not a theft issue, which makes it very clear in some respects, uh, we try to determine what the nature of the compromise. Uh, we see lots of virus uh, reports but a lot of times those issues do not require necessarily uh, notification if you can't look to that particular problem and determine was there unauthorized access through that particular issue. Uh, we found recently one instance where a laptop was generating spam, uh, but the spam generation didn't have anything to do with uh, the, the movement of identity information as far as we could tell. So it does require some review of what we think has occurred on that particular computer. Uh, we have a number of scanning tools and we provide that from a central assistance point of view. We're using uh, certainly Cornell Spider is one of the tools in our uh, software toolkit, but we also use Identity Finder. Uh, does anyone use Identity Finder here? Okay, mostly from UC Davis. All right. Uh, we do license Identity Finder. It's a product that we that came to our attention through an Educause conference. Uh, they actually provide a number of uh, varieties of, of tools. They have one for Windows systems. They just released an Apple uh, 
scanning tool. It's not quite as good as the Windows tool. And they also have a database scanning tool that will look at MySQL, SQL databases, and Oracle databases and search for uh, identity, identity information. Uh, that's also been licensed by our health system uh, to look for medical information. It's not as well customized for that type of uh, work, but I understand Identity Finder is working with our UC Davis health system to customize the tool and the signatures a bit to help. So if you're from a medical center and interested in Identity Finder, you might check with our UC Davis health system, give me a call, and we can link uh, <coughs> you up with those individuals. Uh, also, then I start coordinating with campus resources. And oftentimes, again, this is through the Investigations Coordination Workgroup, but this is not something that uh, IET, the central IT organization here, can resolve on itself. We do need the assistance and guidance and consultation from a number of campus parties. Uh, and with that, I'll turn to Steve Drown, then, who could talk a little bit about, uh, from the campus council's perspective, uh, what they're looking for. Thanks, Bob. Um, actually, don't do any heavy lifting. I just provide advice and consultation and, and chin rubbing um, <laughs> on the various administrative decisions that are, that are often involved here. Um, an early administrative decision is often um, access uh, or further access to the involved electronic communications uh, resource. So maybe, the, you know, as you know, it can come up in a variety of ways where there's a suspected um, breach of security. Um, sometimes we'll want to do further monitoring of the uh, problematic resource or access um, to it. And as, as you know from our electronic communications policies, um, certain monitoring and intrusion detection um, actions uh, are, are appropriate. And that's uh, an exception, or it's provided for, I should say, in our electronic communications policy. Um, so that will often help flesh out uh, the scope and nature of the problem, um, but typically we'll need even more access. And again, we follow our access procedures. We first contemplate seeking access with the consent of the person who controls the, uh, the resource. Um, there are oftentimes, and maybe typically it's the case where uh, we elect not to seek that consent uh, for fear that obtaining that consent could compromise the integrity of, of the review if we suspect that that person could have been involved in, in some manner. So then we flip over to our access without consent process. My guess is you folks are uh, familiar with this process. I'll just touch on it um, lightly. But my role really is to ensure that the folks seeking the access have you know, fully described and uh, provided uh, um, a good explanation of why one of the rationales for access without consent applies, uh, or more, um, ideally. Um, so just to go over them real briefly, uh, one of the uh, uh, rationales is there's a substantiated reason, which means reliable evidence indicating that violation of law or university policies has probably occurred as distinguished from rumor, gossip, or other unreliable evidence. Um, compelling circumstances is another, and that's circumstances in which failure to act might result in significantly, significant bodily harm, significant property loss or damage, loss of significant evidence of one or more violations of law or of university policies, 
uh, or significant liability to the university or to members of the university community. That's often a basis for us um, uh, seeking further uh, access to computer resources. Uh, another is uh, time-dependent critical operational circumstances, and those are circumstances in which failure to act could seriously hamper the ability of the university to function administratively uh, or to meet its teaching obligations, um, but excluding circumstances pertaining to personal or professional activities. Um, so I'll work with folks to make sure that those reasons are, are well supported. Um, I'll work with folks to make sure that the scope of the records requested is also appropriate. Um, we have to work within constitutional uh, uh, privacy uh, rights and make sure that the, the scope of our inquiry is reasonable at the inception of our review and then while we're conducting um, our review. Um, then the, the, the next step is uh, ad advising on um, whether notice is required under this uh, new um, identity theft law in, in California, the 1798.29. And that's usually working with Bob and, and parsing through the language of the statute. You know, is it, is it the identified personal information? Does it have all those characteristics? Was it, you know, unencrypted? And as Bob noted, sometimes they can be feebly uh, encrypted. And, you know, does that count? Um, and uh, the, the typical bugaboo, the one that we really rub our chins on, is do we have a reasonable belief that the information has been acquired by an unauthorized person? So, you know, the case of the laptop that, that's left out uh, uh, or, or, or stolen, you know, that's a, a difficult determination as to whether we have reason to believe that the information was acquired. Um, it'll sometimes depend on the nature of the uh, of the intrusion or attack on the computer. As Bob was mentioning, uh, a recent one where he had concerns turned out to be just a, a spam uh, mechanism. Um, that to be countered with uh, a, what I call, and I'm computer illiterate, uh, sort of a mining expedition where there are certain programs that have indicia that they're actually designed for, for mining of personal information. And sometimes I'll hound Bob uh, to get you know, further information on this type of, of, of virus. Uh, so, uh, and then, you know, there's the, the related decisions of the type of notice that's required. You know, the law provides for, for different, different flavors, and I'll advise folks um, as appropriate there. Once that's addressed, uh, we look at, um, you know, whether, what are the appropriate corrective actions, or in some cases, disciplinary action or performance action of the employees involved <coughs> in the incident. Um, it's rare that these, these are intentional disclosures of information by, by university employees, so it's rare that, you know, we find misconduct that's, that would subject somebody to disciplinary action. But it might well be a performance problem. You know, uh, uh, Bob and crew make a, a concerted effort to, you know, regularly apprise folks of their responsibilities regarding uh, protection of, of confidential personal information. And to the extent that, you know, uh, one of our folks has been you know, reckless or negligent in the maintenance of that information, that's probably something we're going to want to address as a performance uh, issue and certainly corrective measures. So, you know, uh, uh, performance plans or administrative actions to demonstrate that the affected unit is responding appropriately to this, this sort of uh, vulnerability. 
and then I'm you know generally available just to interpret uh, relevant university um, policies, campus policies, and relevant state and federal um, laws as the as they come up. So I'm a I'm a resource to help the other decision makers. <coughs> just as a, one of the things that's always difficult is you've had a breach and you need to decide if you're going to notify. And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that you know the test is do you have a reasonable assumption that or a belief that that the information has been acquired because often it's 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 turned around the other way. We don't know if it was acquired. So we better notify. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's not what the, the law says. It's not. No, yeah. I should also add that we sometimes make a just a campus judgment, although not required by law, in right. our view, to notify. We make a, a policy determination that it's appropriate to notify. Usually, we make clear in that notice that you know, although we're under no legal obligation, we pat ourselves on the back and uh, uh, tell us what tell folks what good scouts we are in, in providing the no notification. Right. A good example of that type of breach would be a, a laptop theft where uh, we know that there is PII information on the laptop, but we really don't know if anyone has acquired it and using it. Uh, but, in fact, it's not very difficult to make that jump from once you have the laptop in your possession uh, to use it. Actually, I was going to use that example mm -hmm. because, right. because it, it, in some sense, what do we mean by acquired? Because the person, somebody... I don't have PII, or let's say I did, and then somebody walked off, or whoever <coughs> came up here, and I, I, I probably picked up his laptop and walked, <laughs> walked back out. Hopefully, it was his laptop too. I guess um, the, uh, but you know, the, the the walked away with it. Most likely, if the laptop is stolen in, in kind of a random location, although this wouldn't have been random, um, the you know the, the assumption would be that it was the laptop itself that was considered of value, and they you know they probably. They might wipe it clean, or they might just, you know, sell it again, uh, and then the person who got it would, you know, might wipe it clean or might not. But, they, but the issue is that they do have possession of the data, but they probably don't even know that they have it. Uh, well, a, a question there we'd be focusing on two other components of the law was it was it encrypted, uh, and did it yeah. contain, you know, the the PII? Yeah, yeah. Mitchell, would you like to describe how? How are you interfacing okay. in this process? Sure. Um, <clears throat> and typically the way um, um, university communication gets involved is usually uh, at a meeting with Steve and someone or someone from his office and uh, Bob. And uh, we'll s normally sit down and talk about a variety of things. I sort of have my own little checklist that we go through to determine um, is this something that uh, should be uh, broadcast to the general public as a press release? Is this something that is important enough that it should just be shared on campus? Is this something that will, should just be shared with the individuals whose information might have been acquired? So we, uh, we go through a list of questions such as um, uh, what actually happened? How did it happen? What is the university doing about it? And what steps are being taken to try to prevent this from ever happening again? And generally... Um, uh, we we try to uh, get all those questions answered because uh, uh, one of the one of the approaches we take at this university and at, at university communications is to try to maintain as transparent a campus as we can and and be as uh, honest and candid as we can with things. So I know there was one particular uh, case uh, actually it happened I think a week before one of these conferences a couple of years ago regarding. Um, uh, personal information of students who applied to the School of Veterinary Medicine as well as students, I believe, who already enrolled. And this was uh, considered of, of, of such a, a ma major uh, 
possible consequence that we ended up doing uh, the, the, the full course. We had a press release that we sent out to the news media. We also created a, a new web page <clears throat> on the School of Veterinary Medicine website that basically gave people information about what happened and what they can do and how they can uh, apply for uh, credit alerts or credit watches or whatever, and the fact that the, <clears throat> the university was um, going to be paying for one year's worth of um, uh, of uh, credit reports from the, um, the, the, the credit rating agencies. Um, the, the biggest challenge is often um, <clears throat> uh, do we, um, the biggest challenge is are we going to make the matter worse? If we if we put out more information, are we? Uh, it's just, I, when I worked as a reporter in Lincoln, Nebraska, we dealt with a police detective there uh, who didn't want us to publicize any uh, bank robberies because then it would give more people inducement to rob banks. And uh, we sort of we took a different attitude at the Lincoln Evening Journal. But uh, <laughs> but um, uh, I think it's uh, it's some, sometimes you have to be careful uh, when you're doing uh, um, media relations or just public information on these sorts of things because you don't want to give out too much information. You don't want to tell people how to build an atomic bomb. You just want to let them know that the atomic bomb was built. It's a bad thing. And these are the steps we're taking to prevent other people from building atomic bombs. Um, and um, uh, again, we, we have a variety of tools that we use on our campus. Uh, we can do everything from uh, simply put something in our staff faculty newspaper, which is a relatively internal communication. But of course, in this day and age, nothing is truly internal uh, because uh, all, of our, all of the stories that run in our staff faculty newspaper are put on a website that can be read in Kazakhstan and Zimbabwe on a daily basis. So um, that stuff is all out there. Uh, the next step we would take is perhaps uh, all put out a press release. We also, as I said before, in some instances have created entire web pages that are basically um, uh, how-to notes to, for folks whose information perhaps has been acquired or has at least been uh, there, there's, in, there's indication that it's, that it's out there in the public domain. And uh, we found that um, <clears throat> I, at least I have never heard gotten any negative feedback to being very open and uh, candid and direct with publicizing these events. I think that uh, I, I can't think of an instance where people have said, geez, you guys are a bunch of bungling idiots. How could you let it happen? Because more often than not, it's, um, it's not the institution. It's not the university. More often than not, it's people who either don't, don't know what they're doing or are careless or, are in fact, uh, have a malicious or criminal intent. So... Um, uh, I, our approach has always been in coordination with with the Bob Bonos of the world and the Steve Drowns <laughs> of the world to work to work together in, in a in a um, and that's really important uh, because in any information campaign you do, you want to make sure that you've got you've got it accurate in terms of again what happened and what are we doing to prevent it from happening again and you also want to make sure that you're not disclosing any information that is stupid or uh, inappropriate to disclose. Uh, and uh, at the same time, you want to make it clear by not by, by presenting the information that you're not trying to cover anything up, and that you take these things seriously. And um, and and again, always um, I think reiterating the goal, which is that we're trying to prevent these things from happening, and we want people who think information is missing or uh, or uh, in in someone else's hands to to come forward and feel that they're not going to be punished for uh, for. Uh, for revealing uh, problems in, in the system that we have. Great. Thank you, Mitchell. Uh, next, we'll turn to Paul to talk about a little bit about the uh, police department involvement. Uh, every once in a while, uh, this becomes a, uh, an issue that, big that issue. a big issue a that, big uh, issue. <laughs> a big issue that uh, requires assistance from uh, the right. police department. 
and part of my role is as a detective sergeant with our police department is when I get a call from Bob, I cringe. <laughs> so I know it's bad because I know they've gone through all the work groups and talked about it. So I know that there's some information out there that I need to do to assess the situation depending upon what type of crime has occurred. And usually it's usually access, unauthorized access to a computer. You know, 502C PC, the penal code section. So I look at it and then if I think or with the information I get from Bob that things are traceable such as an IP address or a possible, you know, person who accessed it by either by some other account means, I will probably ask Bob to give me the hard drive of the computer initially because what I'll have to do is send it out to our high-tech people in Sacramento or Yolo DA's office in the in Yolo County to go ahead and mirror the drive. So we work the forensics off the mirrored drive. And I get a bunch of information from Bob to see what the high-tech people are looking for. So I can go ahead and determine whether I need, as a law enforcement person, to write a search warrant for a person's house, if we know where it's coming from, or for the identity of the IP address, where it came from. And we just kind of compile all that information where I might get enough information I can, you know, file a case with the DA's office for a warrant and follow through with it and kind of support Bob's stuff that he's given me. And then I talk to Mitchell when that comes in that we may arrest a subject who may or may not be an employee at the university. So kind of we all work hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I'm part of the uh, work group committee. We sit here and talk about all these cases and there are a lot of things out there. I, I will say that we've had over the last several months, we have had a lot of laptops stolen out of offices, and that's a big concern here, that uh, they're, not, they're being left un unattended, leaving for five minutes, come back, they're gone. And there are some personal information on that laptop. And, you know, then it starts to cycle all over again. Who did it? What, what information was there? And then we, you know, goes to Bob. Bob looks at it and see what happens with uh, the information. Was there personal identification information on there? Was there a notification that needs, needs to be go, to go out? Mm -hmm. so. Right. The laptop thefts occur very easily. In fact, we just got a report the other day where a faculty member was in Brazil and simply went, was eating dinner and had his laptop case near his feet, near the table legs, and he was eating. By the time he left, <coughs> the case was there, but the computer was gone. He never oh, noticed no. Someone snuck and in his, there. And his pants were gone as well. <laughs> <laughs> he, he still had his liver and his kidneys. Jeez. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but it's very easy. Doors left unlocked. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a jar. Um, it's, just, it's just been really unusual. I mean... People go to the bathroom, five minutes, come back, it's gone. It's like somebody's watching. It's just, it's, we've had a lot. Were, but were any of them with, with encrypted hard disks? Or? Very, very few. Very few yeah. encrypted hard disks. A lot of it, the, the laptop, uh, people use it for personal um, you know, banking. That's not encrypted. Mm -hmm. so that's a concern. And you know, then you're looking at identity theft down the road if the crook knows what he's doing. Most of the times, these laptops are sold at some auction or some flea market, you know, for really cheap prices. And whoever buys it, you know, doesn't isn't aware or should be aware that it's a stolen computer and opens it up, and you know, it's the UC Davis web page and all this information. So we've been lucky and got one computer back because one person actually saw it belong to a, a 
veterinarian, mm -hmm. and we got that back. So he was out $900, but hey, we got the computer back. So I, I, you, you mentioned uh, making a forensic copy of the hard disk. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe this is something I should know, but I haven't been at UC <laughs> Davis all that long. So, but but the the uh, <coughs> I, I was wondering is it, Bob when you, you sounds like you removed the hard or somebody removes the hard drive mm -hmm. from from the machine is is a forensic copy made then or do you just wait until uh, how how, do, how does that happen? Well, I look for the the consensual non-consensual access request form. So th that is one of the first steps that yeah. I go for. Uh, presuming we have that uh, approval, then we look to immediately make a forensic copy, an image copy of that hard drive. The issue is we don't want it to, uh, uh, in error, overwrite something on the hard drive. We want to make sure we protect that original drive and that any work is done on a duplicate copy. Uh, and that's probably the, the way law enforcement works right. in most forensic groups, uh, whether you're in private sector or in a public institution. We would follow, follow the same same type of process. Uh, in terms of guidelines, we would ask that uh, if individuals have situations where, let's say, going back to my list, uh, let's see where that was. These types of breaches, we would ask people not to immediately go looking to repair their system. We've had instances where someone notices something unusual, and they think it's a slow performance so they'll reload their operating system, format the drive and start over. Uh, that really destroys any capability for us to go through and determine what's happened. Uh, so we ask that if, if you're within an IT unit or within a campus unit to consult your, your security group, whether you're in a college, ask for assistance before one goes to start repairing these things on their own because that starts us in a direction that's sometimes very difficult uh, to determine what's happened. Uh, particularly where backups are not uh, easily available. And although we know that backup, backups are a process that we recommend strongly, uh, again, this computer in Brazil that I'm told has no backup. So it's not a process that everyone follows on a regular basis, and that becomes problematic. Uh, the other things we do, we ask in terms of uh, when people are reporting to the security group, tell us things like, uh, when was the date and time of, of discovery of the incident? Uh, what led the person to believe that something was wrong? Uh, a general incident description. Um, describing to us what systems, what data is at risk is very useful, and what actions they've taken. Hopefully they haven't taken much, uh, but we would like to know, and then also contact information. So those are the types of things that I think would be uh, immediately reportable and, and useful to whether it's our security group or another security group. Also, I guess, at what point, knowing Bob, it's probably you can rely on him to know the right point, but, <laughs> but for advice for other people, at what point should the, the kind of IT-associated people investigating a breach involve uh, law enforcement? Well, they can, as far as law enforcement goes, they can call any time to our department. And we can assess it there just based on what they know on the information that they've acquired, whether or not the crimes occurred, um, what kind of information was accessed. So a port can be generated where we, we could start working on the case as soon as we can. The reason Bob gets involved with it because, you know, obviously you've got to follow protocol and policy, so that's why mm -hmm. he gets involved with that whole thing. But if you have a, a question in regards to identity theft or, you know, 
anything, a breach of a, of a system where you don't know if data has been transferred. Just mere, author, just mere unauthorized access to computers is a crime in California. So that can be anything, whether it's remote access, whether it's anything. So <coughs> I have no problems getting questions or emailing me or anything like that, and we can go from there. And then, you know, of course, I'm going to be calling Bob, you know, because you should already be doing a, uh, a, a ticket in to mm -hmm. you guys already, a help ticket or whatever you call it. Right. And even if we don't have the ticket, because we all are participants in the Campus Investigations Coordination Workgroup, it allows us to see that incident, and we meet <coughs> on a regular basis and certainly get consultation uh, from everyone who participates. That group is even, uh, although there's four of us on that group, it's even larger. I'm not sure what the total count 11, is. 11, 14, uh, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> pretty substantial, yes. including yes. med center yeah. folks. Go ahead. I th actually think we're, we're we're in a reasonably defensible position um, to image the hard drive for you know later uh, access access of those contents. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's accessing the contents. Our policy. I was actually just looking uh, at uh, the electronic communications policy, and it's not entirely clear here. But I think in terms of invasion of privacy exposure, if we were to get sued for invasion of privacy, I think we're in a reasonably defensible position. We say, listen, we just we image the the hard drive uh, in order to permit later inspection for everybody's protection, so that you know we can uh, you know, provide assurance that it wasn't uh, tampered with. Um, you know, since the time that we, we found the, the problem. And then we don't access the contents of that hard drive until we've obtained whatever appropriate consent or access without consent we think is, uh, is necessary. But it's interesting, um, the electronic communications um, policy under access without consent um, says that the consent shall be obtained prior to any access for the purpose of examination or disclosure of the contents of university electronic communication records. So if I'm a crafty uh, attorney, you know, I would say, no, wait, wait. You, uh, you image that hard drive for the purpose of examination and, you know, gotcha. But uh, a violation of our policy, if we happen to have or uh, found to have engaged in you know, some technical violation of our policy. That's not necessarily a violation of law. That still goes to um, uh, legal privacy protections. And in my view, absent access of the contents of that and assuming that the um, acquisition of the hard drive or the imaging of the hard drive was done by uh, university employees with a need to know that information uh, for purposes of their university job, I think we're, we're protected. Yeah, the the electronic communications policy, as I remember, it's been a number of years since I've read it, but, it, but I, I think it also, in, a, in another section, observes that just in normal operation, that, yeah, that, monitor, that, that there will be ob things observed. And Absolutely. In the, do, right. I was wondering as to what degree is this normal operation if you're, you know, if you, not that a breach is, is normal, but, but maybe the response to the breach is normal. Right. And that you, you capture it, set it aside. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, what we're typically focused on is the integrity of the review for, for the protection of all the people that uh, are involved uh, and assuring that, again, there's not access to the contents of, of records without obtaining the um, right. appropriate approval. I think it, it depends on your purpose. If you're conducting you know, your, your regular monitoring or going out about your, your business uh, and it's authorized business and you inadvertently you know, discover, oh my goodness, uh, there's this aberration or problem or something very suspicious here, that's actually provided for in the electronic communications policy. It recognizes that might happen in our routine maintenance ser and service of, of uh, electronic communications um, uh, equipment uh, that that will happen, and then that's to be reported pursuant policy under our whistleblower uh, um, policy. So that that's recognized and acknowledged here as uh, um, as something that doesn't really require access uh, without consent or some authorized access. That it's recognized that that's a pathway for um, identification of problems. Some some offices have tried to make it simpler in the sense that. Uh, if they have, if individuals have personal files, they've created special directories or areas that that information uh, under uh, personal incidental use, that information could be stored. It makes it simpler. It's when that hasn't been established and uh, on a particular hard drive or a uh, file server, you just don't know where that information resides because there is no consistent practice. So it makes it even more challenging. Yeah, right. I think it the IT architect here <laughs> would say, you really don't know. If, if you're talking about an arb you know, you don't know where I put things on this thing. So to, to try and look at how, say, the operating system or different applications have structured the disk and assume that that's where information is that you need to worry about, that's probably a mistake. Probably shouldn't, shouldn't follow the technology lines. I mean, obviously, you, you have to to some degree, but you shouldn't make an assumption that because... Microsoft Word likes to put documents in the documents folder um, that, that that is where people save them. I don't myself. I don't like that kind of organization. I, I tend to organize things by topic or project or something. So yeah. so the documents folder does, just doesn't help me. Right. And in fact, we've seen instances where, uh, let's say, for example, HR-related files are stored on a file server, uh, but they're open at the workstation with Windows, and Windows has created some temporary files. And the person really had no clue that information was there, but, a, but upon a more deeper inspection, uh, certainly it could be found. And so those are challenges that perhaps even the end user following the practice wouldn't realize that there's uh, additional problems with that particular system. Well, from a law enforcement, you'd want to preserve that original 
hard drive. That's what we call it. That's what we would use as evidence. And a mirrored copy is what we would work off their forensics and get whatever information that we're looking for. Oftentimes, uh, for the question of what drive are we looking for in terms of uh, the original drive, we try to also keep the original drive, if at all possible, in the early initial steps because you don't know if, in fact, what you'll find needs to go over to the PD. Right. Oftentimes, there's this consultation that occurs, and if you give up the original drive immediately because you have the image, and then the PD comes back and says, wait a minute, we really need that. I would rather hold that and return back for immediate work purposes another image so that the individual can continue work rather than uh, create a problem for a, a law enforcement investigation. Right. I'd have to look that up. So, uh, <laughs> no, not uh, I'd have to look to see uh, where that <laughs> applies. Certainly, um, state law, I don't believe that's uh, filtered into state law, but one of the problems with the 1798 is it talks about encrypted information, but it doesn't establish the strength of that encryption. Again, it could be very weak, and someone could nowadays with a, a simple laptop or a powerful desktop perhaps could uh, unencipher something rather quickly. And so... Uh, indicating the strength is becoming much more important. Yeah, there, there, there's some NIST guidelines, but I think that applies mostly to federal agencies in terms of encryption strength mm -hmm. that would mention something like 140-2. Oh, is that what it's for? Okay. Mm -hmm. do, do people hear that, that, that for, uh, is it for medical? I don't know if it's, does that mean it's HIPAA or just something? Oh, okay. okay. So, so the well, the, the question is, and I'm finally catching on to the uh, the requirements of our uh, uh, panel. Uh, so, I'm repeating the question for the for the tape. <laughs> um, but the question is, aside from these PII requirements, there's other highly confidential, legally privileged uh, information that is subject to being acquired and probably is acquired uh, um, uh, inappropriately. How do you approach that? Do you have different priorities or different approaches to um, um, the compromise of, of that information? I would say that our um, response is similar, but for the notification um, issue, um, you know, we view that uh, you know as, as equally problematic as disclosure of, of PII, uh, and it, we do the best we can to contain it and uh, and pursue a remedy. Uh, typically, I think, as you'll learn from Paul and, and Bob, um, you know, identifying who. Uh, uh, 
accessed these things uh, is is very problematic. But um, no, we we aggressively pursue that as well. Just I think without the uh, the notice um, obligations. And just just as an aside, I'm I'm neither an attorney nor in law enforcement. But from my from my uh, corner of the office, uh, we can be as busy with. Um, uh, university computer owners or operators uh, being the criminal as much as the victim. So uh, there are instances here and there where people are downloading pornography and child pornography on their university computers on university time. And um, at least from my experience, I'm as busy with that as I am with people uh, having uh, crimes committed to them. And, and it does happen. We have uh, oftentimes it is not inadvertent, it's intentional. There's a you know, uh, dissatisfied university employee that in, intends to wreak a little havoc uh, or has a, a, a vendetta against another employee and will share their confidential information with others. That's, of course, subject to university discipline, but as well, that person might be subject to civil liability from the, for instance, the case I just described, um, uh, invasion of privacy by the, by the individual who was uh, affected. And although I don't wear uh, a health service hat, if I was looking at a, a health system breach, uh, state law was modified to have a five-day counter so that if th that compels some type of notification within a short time period. So that becomes even more important uh, and raises a priority such that uh, for us to meet those, those deadlines. Good question. Um, so the question, as I understand it, is uh, how do we um, investigate and review a case involving encrypted information? Uh, how do we go about unencrypting it uh, in order to evaluate what's, what's there and what might have been accessed? Is that accurate? Okay. Um, if, it's, if it's university records, there are records, not the, the individuals. Um, and university employees, uh, one expectation of employment is that you cooperate in a, in a university uh, investigation. So um, if those are university records, uh, you would be expected to share um, the encryption in order to access those, those records. And that we do have on, at UC Davis a, a disk encryption policy that actually underscores that need for us to have access to those university records. Uh, frankly, I can say that in any of the security breaches we've had, I've not seen any encrypted hard drives. We've been really promoting people. <laughs> Regrettably. <to, laughs> I've been really trying to report people to, many, to get rid of the data, <laughs> move the data to portable media so it's not stuck on their hard drive uh, so <clears> they don't need encryption. But if, in fact, uh, that is something uh, that's done in the course of the day, people accessing that type of PII data, then whole disk encryption is something that, that we recommend. And actually, at UC Davis, we fund centrally that software. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
Well, yes and no. Um, uh, you would get the uh, approval for um, obtaining that information, and that's what we would that's what we would need. So, I don't, I'm, what's the um, what's the what's the wrench? I see. Um, <laughs> no. Right. So th the question again was, uh, w what do you do with uh, access without consent um, if the if the record holder uh, has encrypted the the information and it's only the record holder who has the the encryption? Um, I think you know with that we just have to take the uh, the investigation integrity considerations into account and try to orchestrate it in such a manner that. We obtained maybe well, certainly in that circumstance we'd be recommending um, uh, imaging of the hard drive uh, to ensure its integrity, and then probably at that point um, seeking the consent or compelling uh, the uh, the <laughs> disclosure of the uh, of the uh, encryption. Are the Well, the campus at UC Davis disk encryption policy does have a provision for key escrow. So there is an issue already there because the concern is that those are university records. And it, it may not be that, that the individual uh, isn't willing. Let's say that uh, I use my Mack truck example. I'm walking across the street uh, over on B Street and I get hit by the Mack truck and there's university records. and access is needed. Or you're in the jungles of Africa, not, not reachable for, you know, three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is all about, I mean, if you're really talking about university records and there's only one person who knows right. the way to unlock them, that was a bad departmental <laughs> management decision. To There'd be a performance issue we'd be following <laughs> up on you know, there. there there's, there's something that should have happened ahead of that, that Mack truck or that person deciding he doesn't want to give up the key. The, you know, the, the university should never put itself in that position. Of course, you can, and then, then as you right. mentioned, the, there's, there's nothing explicit in IS3 or ECP or anything that says you must disclose the key, although there is, you know, corrective action and insubordination that says that if you're, if you're managing university resources and you refuse to turn those resources over to the university, there's a problem there that can be dealt with through more HR kinds of policies. Um, my guess is there's legal recourse after that. Water, waterboarding. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have time for one more question, Larry. Mm -hmm. We still subsidize uh, point sec licenses. That product does permit a key escrow-like function so that we can have access to the machine. Uh, the question is whether or not everyone uses PointSec. There are many other solutions out there, some not being uh, uh, requiring any type of fee to use. Yeah. And so the question is how those have been deployed. Uh, right. PointSec software was 
Yes. The, um, yeah. All right. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the, the trick is you need the key escrow if you want to be able to get it back. There's no difference between losing a key and dropping your laptop off the top of a building. You know, both ways, you know, assuming that it's a tall enough building that you actually destroy the hard drive. And, and so, so you need to think through those issues because that's another way, of course, to lose <laughs> access to those records is just to actually have them destroyed. Um, but, yeah. Thank you. Go ahead. Right, I think we're out of time, and I appreciate everyone joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.